Welcome back to Counting to Five, a podcast about the United States Supreme Court. I'm Mike, your host. This is our weekly YouTube live stream being broadcast live Thursday, April 5th, 2018 at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And this live stream will also be posted as an episode of the Counting to Five audio podcast. If you're watching live, please feel free to ask questions in the YouTube live chat at any, at any time, and I'll try to monitor it and uh, periodically uh, answer any questions as they arise. In these weekly live streams, um, we keep up to date with the latest Supreme Court news, and here's what I plan to cover today. In the last week, the court granted one new case, a case called Stokeling v. Uh, United States, which will be uh, heard next term. It's a criminal law case about the Armed Career Criminal Act. I'll talk about that a little uh, later. The court also issued a few uh, opinions. There was only one opinion in an argued case. It's a case called Encino Motor Cars, and uh, that's a case about an exemption from federal overtime requirements for certain car dealership employees, and I'll talk about that a little later. The court also issued one uh, summary per curiam opinion. That's an unsigned opinion in a case that was decided without oral argument or full briefing. And also, Justice Sotomayor issued an opinion dissenting from uh, the court's denial of review in, in one case. And I'll be discussing each of those. But first, before I get to that, uh, I want to give a quick update uh, about another case on the court's docket that we've talked about before, and also take a look at a very unusual order from the court this week uh, in, in, a, in another case. So, so I'll start with those. Uh, first, the update is in the case United States v. Microsoft. And if you've um, if you've listened to previous uh, of these uh, live streams, this case has come up a number of times. This is a case about the government's ability to obtain emails that are stored on a server outside the United States using a warrant under the Stored Communications Act. So this is when law enforcement is trying to obtain um, uh, emails for, for some uh, investigation. Uh, if those emails are stored outside the country, can they obtain them? And this was uh, argued um, earlier this term. That this is, uh, case was already uh, um, argued and uh, is just uh, pending, awaiting a decision at the court. Um, but I've discussed uh, in the last few weeks there's been some uh, – developments that directly relate to this case. And just as a quick recap, what happened was uh, two weeks ago, on, on Friday, March 23rd, Congress enacted the um, the omnibus spending bill. Uh, there was the the, uh, the large uh, spending bill, uh, the 2,000-plus page bill that uh, included numerous provisions. One of the many things included in that bill was uh, something known as the Cloud Act, which is uh, an amendment to the Stored Communications Act that explicitly allows the government access to emails stored uh, outside of the country. Um, so after the passage of that act on Friday, March 23rd, the government sent a letter to the court advising the court of this new legislation and uh, t- saying that it intended to file uh, a supplemental filing um, in the Microsoft case, uh, basically to discuss the how this new legislation should affect that case. So the n- new developments that have occurred is um, this past Friday, on March 30th, the government did file a brief in the Microsoft case arguing that the case is now moot. So the government argues that the, the Cloud Act, the newly passed Cloud Act, does apply to the original warrant that they uh, had obtained under the Stored Communications Act, so it would retroactively apply and now allow access to overseas data under that. Um, but apparently Microsoft had disagreed, this is behind the scenes, with uh, with that uh, argument that it applied retroactively. So what the government had done is they went ahead and got uh, applied for a new warrant on March 30th, received that warrant from the court, which uh, replaced, basically superseded the original warrant. And this new warrant is clearly governed by the Cloud Act, which has specific um, provisions for this overseas uh, uh, data. So, um, so that that would that would make the uh, the original case, which was based on the old version of the Stored Communications Act before this amendment, that would make that moot. It's totally irrelevant now that that uh, warrant is no longer um, at issue in the case. So uh, Tuesday, just two days ago, April third, Microsoft responded and agreed with the government that the case is moot due to this new um, the new warrant under the under the Cloud Act. And then yesterday. The court set this uh, motion to basically to dismiss this case as moot, set that for their, their April 20th private conference. So in a few weeks, this case will almost certainly be gone. This is a case that will be disappearing off the court's docket. Um, it uh, you know hasn't happened officially yet, but I think we can expect uh, the uh, orders list that comes out after the court's April 20th conference will uh, will likely uh, 
show that this case is gone. Um, the other, the other case, this is, this is a very unusual situation. There's a, it's a case called Deutsche Bank Trust Company Americas v. Robert R. McCormick Foundation. Now, this is a case that's it, uh, spun out of a bankruptcy of the Tribu- Tribune Company, which is a major media company that published the Chicago Tri- Tribune, among many other um, newspaper and uh, and uh, broadcast properties. Um, it was a very unusual order. It's actually not an order at all because it doesn't have any legal effect. It doesn't actually tell anyone to do anything. But uh, but here, here's what it is. It was it was um, phrased as a. Uh, a statement respecting the petition for certiorari, and it was by Justices Kennedy and Thomas, only those two justices, and I'll come back to that in a minute. And here, I'm just going to read the, the, the full, um, uh, the, the, uh, the language of this, of this, uh, statement, and, and then I'll kind of explain what's going on here. Here's what it says. It says, the parties are advised that consideration of the petition for certiorari will be deferred for an additional period of time. This will allow the Court of Appeals or the District Court to consider whether to recall the mandate, entertain a Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 60B motion to vacate the earlier judgment, or provide any other available relief in light of this Court's decision in Merit Management Group v. FTI Consulting. The petition for certiorari in this case was pending when the Court decided Merit Management. The Court of Appeals or the District Court could decide whether relief from judgment is appropriate, given the possibility that there might not be a quorum in this Court. So, uh, so what, what is going on here? I'm going to break this down a little. The court is basically saying, we're not going to do anything on this case for a while, but lower courts, maybe you want to step in and do something in the meantime. Hint, hint. What, what's going on here? So what this is about, it's about a process the court has. It's just known as, it's known for short as a GVR, which stands for grant, vacate, and remand. And what it, what it is, is the court will sometimes, um, Sometimes when the court the court has multiple petitions, so there's petitions of certiorari, that's the formal petitions to the court asking the court to take and hear a case. Sometimes the court has multiple petitions on the same legal issue or on some overlapping legal issues. And sometimes the court will only grant one or or maybe one or two of those petitions, and there's others um, that are just pending before uh, before the court on that same issue. Or sometimes the court has already granted a petition on an issue, and then after that point, while it's pending, additional petitions are filed in other cases on that same issue. And what the court does with these kind of duplicate cases or cases raising the same issue is normally the court will just hold these cases pending the resolution of the case that they granted. And holding it just means they take no action on the case. It just kind of sits in limbo waiting for the case they've granted to be resolved. And then... What this allows the court to do is if the case that they granted, something happens to it, it ends up being dismissed for te- technical or procedural reasons. Maybe the parties settle the case or maybe there's some sort of uh, issue that one of the parties to the case didn't really have standing to bring it or something like that and they have to get rid of the case for a technical reason. Then maybe the court can go and grant one of the other ones they've been holding and still resolve that issue. But more typically what happens is the granted case gets decided. The court hears the argument on it. The court issues its opinion, its decision in that case and, and, uh, and resolves the granted case. And then what the court will do is shortly after deciding that case, the cases that it had, it had held are GVR'd, granted, vacated, and remanded. What the court does is it grants the case for the sole purpose of immediately vacating the lower court opinion, that is, legally nullifying that opinion, just kind of wiping out the lower court's decision in it, and then remanding it, that is, sending it back to the lower court to reconsider in light of the the case that the court just decided. So they basically decide one case on a particular issue, take all the other cases on that issue, and send them back down to the lower court and just say, uh, take another look at this in light of what we just decided, and then the lower court has an opportunity to see if the uh, the Supreme Court's decision, um, you know, ha- causes them to to have to change what they did in the case to to, to decide it a different way or, or or something like that. So that's the typical process, this GVR, and it, it happens um, fairly regularly. So uh, the the case that's at issue here, the Supreme Court case, there's a case called Merit Management Group v. FTI Consulting. And the court decided this case, issued its decision and its opinions in this case on February 27th. And this was a, a case, it was a bankruptcy case. It was about a bankruptcy court's power to unwind certain financial transactions that happened before a bankruptcy was filed. Um, so sometimes certain tra- financial transactions are engaged in by the party that then declares bankruptcy. A court can actually step in and undo those transactions after the fact. Um, and 
this this the case that we're talking about here, this Deutsche Bank um, case, it uh, relating to the Tribune company's bankruptcy, it raised. Um, among other things, it raised the same question of bankruptcy law as the merit management case, this case about um, whether certain transactions can be can be unwound after the fact. Um, so normally uh, in, in, in where GVRs happen, I'm just going to give some examples from very recent examples from earlier in this term on, in other cases. On March 21st, the court decided a criminal case called uh, Marinello v. United States. It's about obstruction of the administration of the tax code. Uh, so that was decided on March 21st. In the following Monday's order list, the court granted and vacated a case called Westbrooks v. United States, remanded it to the lower court for further consideration in light of Marinello. So that's a classic GVR right after the the, the uh, decision is is issued. Another example, February 27th, the court decided a case about immigration detention called Jennings v. Rodriguez. In the immediately following Monday's orders list, the court granted and vacated a case called Shanahan v. Laura and remanded it to the lower court for further consideration in light of Jennings v. Rodriguez. So that's the that's the common um, pattern you see is they, they, they decide one case and then any cases they've been holding on the same issue, they send them back down. So why couldn't the court GVR this Deutsche Bank case in light of the merit management group thing. So when they decided merit management, why didn't they just GVR this case, send it back down for, um, for reconsideration? And the issue is the court's quorum requirements. And the court, it appears the court does not have a quorum to decide this case. Now, what, what does this, what does this mean? There's a statute, uh, federal statutes, it's, uh, it's 28 USC 1, right? Is the, that's the, uh, the code, uh, uh, citation for the statute. It reads, the Supreme Court of the United States shall consist of a Chief Justice of the United States and eight Associate Justices, any six of whom shall constitute a quorum. So they need six Justices in order to decide a case. Now normally it takes five Justice majority, it takes a majority of the Justices that are hearing a particular case to decide a case. But if they have less than six um hearing a case, then they don't have a quorum and they can't, they can't even hear the case. Now, in this case, fully seven of the nine justices are conflicted, uh, conflicted out of this case because they hold shares in mutual funds, um, managed by parties to the case. Now, this, the, the, uh, cert petition, the petition includes literally about 150 pages just lit. All right. I just had technical difficulties. My feed cut out, but it appears we're back. So I hope you're uh, still sticking with me. But uh, when it cut out, I was I was saying that the the petition in this case uh, includes literally 150 pages listing the parties to the case, and includes hundreds of financial institutions. And it, it uh, the the situation in this case is that many of these uh, these parties listed are, are shareholders of the Tribune company who were affected by uh, the 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 way the um, the, re, the company's reorganization and bankruptcy played out. And it, so it includes these numerous financial uh, institutions that were shareholders of the, uh, the company. And, and as I said, hundreds of financial institutions, the real surprise is there's any justices left who aren't recused. But as I said, seven of the nine justices are conflicted and, uh, you know, would presumably have to recuse themselves from, um, from hearing this case and leaving only uh, justices Kennedy and Thomas left, to decide the case. So, so what happens when the court doesn't have a quorum? There's another federal statute. This one is 28 USC 2109, and it reads in part, it says, if a majority of the qualified justices, the qualified justices means those that are not um, recused. This is, this is a procedure when there is not a quorum. It says, if the majority of the qualified justices shall be of the opinion that the case cannot be heard and determined at the next ensuing term, the court shall enter its order affirming the judgment of the court from which the case was brought for review with the same effect as upon affirmance by an equally divided court. Now, what that last part means, the same when 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 there's an equally equally divided court. So, for example, if there's one justice recused and the court splits four to four, what happens is the lower court opinion is just affirmed. So it just it stands. Whatever the lower court decided stays in this particular case, but it has no precedential value for future cases. It doesn't count as a Supreme Court decision. On that, on that case. So saying the same thing happens here. If you have no quorum, uh, then the remaining justices can, can, they have, they, 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 they can decide whether they think this will be able to be heard at next term. So if this is a, a temporary, uh, lack of quorum that may be, uh, uh, resolved in the, in the near future, they can, they can 
they don't need to do that. But otherwise, they just affirm the lower court decision, and uh, and and that's that for the case. So, um, so normally in this case, without this this whole quorum issue, the court would just GVR the case, send it back down, so the lower court could reconsider it in light of the merit management decision. But with only two justices left on the case, they can't even do that. They have no quorum, so they can't even grant it for the purpose of vacating and remanding. So what do they do here? They basically are stalling. They they say consideration of the petition for certiorari will be deferred for an additional period of time. Very vague. Just we're not going to do anything for a while. And they not so subtly hint that the lower courts might want to reconsider the rulings in this case. But the court can't make them do anything. They they don't have they don't have the power to order the lower court to reconsider or redecide the case. They can't vacate the lower court's uh, uh, judgment um, in the case. So. Um, it'll just be interesting to see whether the lower courts uh, take this hint and uh, and decide to um, on, uh, to reconsider the opinion below. It's just a very very odd, unusual uh, uh, situation. So um, moving on to other things, uh, I mentioned that there was um, one new case granted this year, one cert grant uh, or, or this week. Um, they granted one new case that brings the total grants for next term up to eight so far. Uh, so eight cases to be heard um, for the term starting in uh, October, um, October 2018. And the next time any more grants will be coming will, will, will not, not be until uh, Monday, April 16th. That's the earliest uh, date where the court could add some additional cases. So we're, we're, uh, we're kind of watching this because the last couple of years, um, the court has had a very light caseload, especially in the fall, in the beginning of its term. And uh, it remains to be seen if that's kind of a, if that's going to continue, if that's going to happen again this year. So we're interested to see how many more cases they grant before the court leaves um, uh, for its summer break at the end of June. And right now they've only got eight, but there's still a lot of time to add more. So we'll see. So the one new case they granted is a case called Stokeling v. v United States. And this is a case about the Armed Career Criminal Act. And what this involves is, is this is a, a, um, a sentencing um, a, a, a enhancement for um, a. Let me back up a second. So the, the the basic the crime that's involved here is the federal uh, felon in possession statute. So it's uh, 18 USC 922G. It's a federal statute that involves um, people that have been convicted of uh, of felonies who are uh, then uh, found to be in possession of uh, firearms or ammunition. Um, and there's a, a provision, uh, the Armed Career Criminal Act is, is a, a, another provision. This one's 18 USC 924E, um, which basically says someone who has been, um, convicted of 922G, so that's the possession, federal felon possession, and they had three or more prior convictions for a violent felony or a serious drug offense. So three or more prior convictions for violent felony or serious drug offense. Then, they are subject to a 15-year mandatory minimum for this new felon in possession violation. Um, and the issue here is a violent felony that's defined in the statute as uh, a crime that's punishable by more than a year in prison. And uh, this is from the statute. It says, has as an element the use, attempted use, or threatened use of physical force against the person of another. Um, so element just means that's one of the one of the facts that needs to be proved to convict someone of the particular crime. So one of the facts that you have to prove to convict of the crime is the use or attempted use, attempted use or threatened use of physical force. Um, now, the issue here is uh, most criminal law in, in the United States is state law. The overwhelming majority of criminal convictions are under state law. However, federal law sometimes imposes consequences for state convictions. Um, this one is 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 a, a sentencing enhancement, um, but there are other examples are, for example, under Im- immigration law, whether someone is deportable, um, and can be uh, removed and deported from the country, um, may depend on on uh, being convicted of certain state crimes. Now, um, here, the federal sentence enhancement, this this uh, Armed Career Criminal um, Act provision with uh, three or more prior convictions, um, it depends on state law convictions. But the issue is criminal laws, they vary enormously from state to state. There's a huge variation in exactly how different crimes are named and how they're defined and where the line is drawn, for example, between misdemeanors and felonies or where the line is drawn between different degrees of a particular offense. And so it's impossible for federal law to specify in detail 
which state crimes it's meant to apply to. When 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 they want to piggyback a federal provision of federal law on state cr- uh, criminal convictions, um, they they can't uh, point out every single state law because there's just so much variation in so many different laws, and and they're subject to change at any time by all the various state legislatures. So instead, what federal law um, does is it will it often attempts to describe an entire category of criminal offense, like the violent felonies here, the description of those here. But this can lead to some difficult line drawing issues in determining if a particular crime uh, fits this definition. So it's, here's here's the basics of what this case is about. The criminal defendant in this case is named Denard Stokeling, and uh, he was convicted of being a felon in possession of a firearm. He had three prior Florida criminal convictions. There was an unarmed robbery an armed robbery, and a drug trafficking conviction. Now, the the dispute here is over the unarmed robbery um, conviction. Is that a violent felony under this uh, the Armed Career Criminals Act? So, and the issue is the whether something is a violent felony, it doesn't depend on the specific facts of the crime committed by a particular defendant. It doesn't matter what uh, Stokeling actually did, whether his conduct was uh, particularly violent or not. Instead, what it matters is it, what matters is is the the crime he was convicted of. So this robbery, Florida robbery um, conviction, um, how that is defined under state law, whether that is defined under state law in such a way that one of the things that has to be proved is this use or attempted use of uh, of physical force. Um, and so the 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 issue here is the florida florida robbery one of the things that's required to convict someone of robbery in florida is resistance by the victim that is overcome by physical force of the offender um that's a fairly common element in uh state definitions of robbery it's it's a common thing that basically distinguishes robbery from just a a a, a theft um, offense elevate something from theft to robbery is that there was some uh level of force uh uh, res- overcoming resistance by the the victim. Now the government argues, well, that's that's all you need. Um, the the fact that you have to uh, apply some sort of physical force to overcome resistance uh, qualifies as the use, attempted use, or threatened use of physical force. Um, the argument on the other side is that Florida law includes even minimal action to override minimal resistance of the victim. And the example that comes up is engaging in a tug of war over a victim's purse. So the fact that uh, that, uh, you know, a purse strap needs to be pulled out of someone's, you know, the gross grip of someone's fingers uh, is enough to qualify as applying force to overcome resistance by the, the victim. Um, but the Supreme Court has previously characterized what force means, physical force in the Armed Career Criminal Act, to mean violent force, uh, which they've described as force capable of causing pain or injury. Um, so the argument here is the Florida law doesn't necessarily require the kind of violent force that the Armed Career Criminals Act requires. Someone could be convicted under Florida law, and again, it doesn't matter what this this particular defendant was convicted of, it's just about the crime in general. It's possible to be convicted, the argument is, under this Florida law, um, even if they hadn't uh, used the type of force that would kind of amount to violent force under the Armed Career Criminal Act. Now, the government, on the other hand, says that, that this this is wrong, basically, that force capable of causing pain or injury includes even minor pain, even something like a slap in the face would be enough to um, qualify. And any amount of force that's necessary to overcome someone's resistance could, in theory, be the force that could have, you know, could cause some sort of minor pain or injury, and that's that's enough to uh, to to qualify. So that's that's the issue. And again, the court will take this case up uh, next term, um, probably October or maybe November, um, depending on how their calendar uh, um, uh, shakes out. And so that's that's it for new cases. And so let's move on to the opinions this week. And there are, uh, as I said, three different opinions. One is just a um, a opinion by Justice Sotomayor. I'll talk about that one first. Um, dissenting from the uh, denial of certiorari. So the Supreme Court um, chose not to take uh, two two cases out of Florida raising a particular issue. Justice Sotomayor issued a uh, dissent from that court's decision. Now, these are cases involving um, an Eighth Amendment challenge. It's a cruel and unusual punishment challenge to Florida's capital sentencing regime. And this is actually the third time this term that Justice Sotomayor has dissented from denials uh, of petitions on this very same issue. Um, she had one on October 16th. It was a case called True Hill v. Florida. And then on February 26th, 
uh, a case called Middleton v. Florida, and I, I discussed this actually on a, on a previous um, live stream after after that February 26th um, uh, opinion came down. And the issue here, this, this all comes from a, a 2016 case called Hearst v. Florida, and that was a, a decision of the Supreme Court. Um, the majority opinion was written by Justice Sotomayor, uh, which may um, show why she uh, um, – it feels so strongly about this issue, but Florida previously had a capital sentencing scheme where the jury gave a advisory sentence by majority vote, gave an advisory sentence, but then the judge made the final sentencing decision. So this is a decision of life in prison versus uh, a death sentence. And the jury would have given an advisory opinion. The judge would make the final decision. The court found that this was unconstitutional under the sixth amendment's right to a jury trial. They said that this, this determination has to be made by a jury um, can't and can't be left to the judge. Now, um, what happened is here the 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 the, um, the sentenced um, uh, convicted uh, capital uh, defendants in each of these cases. Uh, it was uh, the two cases are called uh, uh, Guardado v. Jones and Cosi v. Florida, and those the, it involves two men who are both sentenced to death under this pre-Hearst advisory jury recommendation scheme. Now, the Florida Supreme Court has has said that these pre-Hearst decisions, if it was a unanimous jury recommendation of death, then the court can just treat that as a jury's determination, um, as a binding jury determination on the uh, on the sentence, and there's no need to redo these sentencings. They can just uh, keep those in place, keep those death sentences in place. Now, the claim here is that this actually violates the Eighth Amendment, the, uh, the prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment. When a death sentence by a jury um, is – when a jury is assured that its decision is non-binding and advisory only, then um, then treating that as a as a binding decision is is unconstitutional because what, what you've done by doing that is reduce the moral stakes in the decision – and create a greater risk of arbitrary application when the jurors don't feel that they need to take their role in the uh, sentencing scheme as seriously because someone else is there as a backstop. There's a judge there who's going to really make the final call so a juror doesn't have to have the full moral weight of the decision that they're making. That's that's the uh, the argument here. Um, and but but as as I said, the court has not taken up one of these these cases from Florida. Um, Challenging Florida's uh, basically conversion of the unanimous uh, advisory um, recommendation by the jury into a into a binding um, jury death sentence. The court hasn't taken any of these up, and so Justice uh, Sotomayor, in in this uh, this dissent from the denial, is basically criticizes the court for repeatedly refusing to take cases on this issue, and is very harshly critical of the Florida Supreme Court for uh, you know as she sees it not taking seriously the Eighth Amendment issue that she has been uh, repeatedly raising and pointing out. Um, one interesting thing about this is that her previous. Uh, dissents from denial in Truehill and Middleton. In those, she was joined by two other justices, Justice Ginsburg and Justice Breyer. Justice Breyer had a slightly, um, slightly different position because he hadn't joined uh, the Hearst decision that uh, Sotomayor wrote. He 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 did not join her opinion in that particular case, so he's slightly different. But had uh, but Ginsburg and Breyer basically both joined Sotomayor in these dissents um, from denying those two previous cases. But in this one. Um, uh, the, the one issue this week, she, she's on her own and no one, no one joined her here. Uh, it's, it seems very unlikely that they've, uh, um, either of them has changed their minds on this issue. It's only been a month since the, uh, basically since the, uh, Middleton, um, decision. So, so it's interesting just, uh, to, to, you know, speculate on why they didn't, um, they show up here. You know, it's possible that they disagree with the tone of her criticism of the Florida Supreme Court or, uh, maybe they, they just think that, They've made their position clear. They've already, you know, stated their case, uh, dissented on the record, and now it's time to just let it go and move on. Because on these, uh, decisions to grant or deny cases, um, it's, it's not, the dissents are not necessarily recorded in every case. A, a justice can choose to register that they've dissented from a decision, but, um, but often they don't. And just because a case is, uh, denied by the court doesn't mean there was no justice that was interested in taking it up. So maybe they've just decided we've set our piece and it's time to move on. Um, 
And it's just kind of a reminder that on on these unsigned orders, uh, things like a denial of certiorari, others are the, the many orders that the court um, routinely issues without any indication of who's voting on either side. The lack of a noted de- dissent doesn't necessarily mean that a particular justice agreed with the result. Um, it's uh, it, it, so I, that's that's about all for that uh, um, that particular opinion. So moving on from there, the other. Um, uh, another opinion uh, that came out with the uh, the orders on Monday, there was a, a per curiam opinion in a case called Casella v. Hughes. Now, um, what this is a this is a uh, summary decision. Now, what what that means is um, the the most of the, the court's cases, the ones that, that you know we we spend the most time discussing and talking about, and that get all the attention. Uh, that's what's often referred to as the court's merits docket. And uh, th- those cases, uh, when the court grants one of those cases, there's a full um, schedule, a full briefing schedule where the parties file uh, new legal briefs, and and then there's oral argument before the court, and then the court will come out with an opinion. Um, but occasionally, the court instead issues a summary decision, and what happens there is when the court formally grants the case it immediately at the same time issues an opinion deciding the case so the same day that the the, the exact same time that the that the the court announces that it's granting the case it also disposes of the case by issuing an opinion right then and there and in those cases the normal practice is that rather than a signed opinion written by a particular justice and joined explicitly by other justices the court issues instead an unsigned opinion which is referred to as a per curiam per curiam opinion which just means it's by the court um, and these are very often unanimous or at least have no noted dissents, but sometimes there are, um, uh, signed dissents, uh, on these, uh, these per curiam summary opinions. And in this case, uh, there was a dissent by Justice Sotomayor joined by Justice Ginsburg. Um, now the, the other thing is normally when the court selects cases that it grants for its merits docket, it's typically granting cases to decide an unsettled issue of law, either some um, issue that's been dividing the lower courts or some new and very important issue that, that it feels that it needs to resolve. But it's normally major unsettled issues of law. It, it normally, and the court the court is very open about this, they, they, they don't take cases just because the lower court got it wrong. They say they, they don't consider themselves a court of error correction, which many lower um, appeals court, many state appeals courts and the lower federal courts are, um, courts of error correction. If, if a mistake is made in the lower court, you can appeal that up as of right and have a higher court usually take another look at it and see if the lower court got something wrong. The Supreme Court says that's not really their job. Their job is to provide uniformity of federal law and, and to kind of decide these unsettled issues, not just to police the lower courts. Um, and because of this focus, usually the court because it's looking for these these legal issues, it prefers cases with with cleaner, less complicated facts. It doesn't like to wade into very fact intensive applications of settled legal rules. That's not the type of thing that it likes for its merits docket. But these summary decisions are a major exception to that uh, general practice. The court, in a typical year, may decide a half dozen to a dozen of these or so, some 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 something in those that ballpark. Um, generally vacating or reversing a lower court decision. Um, but in these cases, uh, it, it, it's different. The, 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 the court is, does wade into these very fact intensive, um, issues and is rarely really create, uh, creating new settled rules of law. Instead, it's, it's really, um, more closely policing the lower court's application of legal standards that the court has previously laid out. And these summary reversals, they tend to be heavily concentrated in certain key areas where apparently the justices, at least some of the justices, believe that the lower courts are just not faithfully applying the Supreme Court's precedents. And one of those areas is something called qualified immunity. And that's what's going on here in this case. So this Casella v. Hughes case is a qualified immunity case. And what this is about is qualified immunity is a protection um for government officials who are being sued for money damages for violation of constitutional rights. And what qualified immunity does is, is when you sue a government official um, for a, a constitutional claim, you not only have to show that there's a constitutional right that was violated, but you have to show that the right was, that this was clearly established. It has to be clearly established that whatever this government official did violated uh, a constitutional right. Um, 
And the court has, has phrased this in pretty, pretty demanding terms. They've said, for example, that existing precedent must have placed the constitutional question beyond debate. And they, this is a quote, uh, the court has said that, um, quote, immunity protects all but the plainly incompetent or those who knowingly violate the law. Um, so, so basically, it's, it's a high st- burden that has to be met. Um, it, it requires uh, a plaintiff who wants to um, succeed in one of these uh, claims against a government official to to really be able to point to precedents that show that um, th- that it should have been obvious. Any 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 reasonable government official in that position, in light of the existing case law, should have known that what they were doing was unconstitutional. Um, and the court requires generally a pretty high level of specificity from previous precedents. It's not enough to say that certain type of conduct in a very general and vague way is unconstitutional, but there needs to be facts or very specific situations that are very close uh, to the existing case. Now, Here's the basic facts in this particular case, Casella v. Hughes. So this is a case out of Tucson, Arizona, and there was a 911 call about a woman holding a large kitchen knife and acting erratically, apparently hacking at a tree uh, in the yard of a house with with this knife. Um, the police, uh, when they came into the neighborhood, the caller, the 911 caller, flagged the police down and directed them to to the house uh, where where this uh, had been happening. Now the police saw um, Amy Hughes emerged from the house holding a kitchen knife at her side. Another woman uh, named Sharon Chadwick was standing near a car in the driveway. Hughes, who the one who was carrying the knife, approached Chadwick and stopped about six feet away from her. The police officers, who were separated from the two women by a chain-link fence, they drew their guns, yelled for Hughes to drop the knife. Hughes didn't acknowledge the presence of the police, and, and uh, several of the officers testified later that it seemed like she didn't even know they were there, didn't even... Uh, wasn't even acknowledging their existence, and she didn't drop the knife. One of the officers, Officer Andrew Casella, fired uh, four shots, striking Hughes uh, four times. The police then restrained Hughes, called the paramedics. Her injuries weren't life-threatening, and she survived. Um, but she later sued Casella, the police officer, for using excessive force in violation of the Fourth Amendment. Um Casella argued that it was not excessive force given the circumstances, and in any event, that he had qualified immunity. It wasn't clearly uh, it wasn't a uh, clearly a violation of constitutional rights under existing law. Now, this went up to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. The Ninth Circuit found that it was a constitutional violation. This was excessive force, and also that there was no qualified immunity. That this was clearly established as a constitutional violation, and from there, a uh, petition went up to the Supreme Court. Now, the majority here, this is the per curiam opinion, finds that there is qualified immunity. Now, the court doesn't talk about the underlying Fourth Amendment uh, excessive force uh, claim. The court uh, just says, assuming for the sake of argument that this was a constitutional violation, but doesn't actually decide that one way or the other. Um, but the court says, even, even if it is, it's not... It wasn't clearly established, so there would be qualified immunity. Now, here's here's the court's the, 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 um, description... Of, of the facts that, that kind of lead to this decision. Here's just, just some of the key facts. It says, Casella was separated from Hughes and Chadwick by a chain link fence. Hughes had moved to within a few feet of Chadwick and she failed to acknowledge at least two commands to drop the knife. Those commands were loud enough that Chadwick, who was standing next to Hughes, heard them. This is far from an obvious case in which any competent officer would have known that shooting Hughes to protect, shooting Hughes to protect Chadwick would violate the Fourth Amendment. So um, that, that's kind of the, the, just their basic statement of, of some of the key facts uh, and, and, and the uh, conclusion that leads the court to. The court goes on to criticize the Ninth Circuit, um, basically uh, saying that the, the Ninth Circuit was uh, relying on cases as, as kind of establishing, uh, showing a clearly established right that, that weren't really closely analogous, that didn't, didn't have facts that were similar enough. Um, and and also the, the the saying that the Ninth Circuit was too quick to uh, to kind of dispose of or distinguish away a, a case that was actually the most similar to this uh, a case called Blanford where the Ninth Circuit had previously found qualified immunity which the court uh, majority thought was sufficiently similar to to uh, the facts in this case that uh, someone aware of that case would think that they were um, that it was a, a reasonable action. Now, Justice Sotomayor um, dissents, and she has her, her opinion has a, a very different presentation of what she sees as the relevant facts. Here's just just briefly. Here is uh, Justice Sotomayor's um, 
kind of description of, of what she sees as, as the, the, the facts. She writes, Hughes stood station, Hughes stood stationary about six feet away from Chadwick, appeared composed and content, and held a chicken, a kitchen knife down at her side with the blade facing away from Chadwick. Hughes was nowhere near the officers, had committed no illegal act, was suspected of no crime, and did not raise the knife in the direction of Chadwick or anyone else. Faced with these facts, the two other responding officers held their fire, and one testified that he wanted to continue trying verbal commands and see if that would work. But not Casella. He thought it necessary to use deadly force, and so, without giving a warning that he would open fire, he shot Hughes four times, leaving her seriously injured. Um, and she, she criticizes the majority specifically for not viewing the facts in the light most favorable to Hughes and, or and drawing inferences in her favor. And that's, that's something related to just the, 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 the um, the, the procedural, um, uh, the point at which this is being decided. This was decided by the lower court on, um, summary judgment, which is before, uh, there's been a trial or before any of the facts have specifically been established. So in order to throw the case out, a court is supposed to construe everything in favor of the party that's asking to keep the case alive. Um, and Sotomayor criticizes the justices for not, um, viewing it appropriately in that, in that light. And she argues that not only is there a clear constitutional violation, but there's no cons- no qualified immunity. And she runs through a number of the same cases that the majority referred to, but reads them very differently. But ultimately, the key dispute here between the majority and Justice Sotomayor's dissent is is whether, under the circumstances, it was reasonable to believe that Hughes posed a threat of harm to Chadwick. Um, and and the 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 majority in the dissent are basically reading these previous cases uh, kind of to to. Uh, Shed kind of a di- different, uh, different light on that, on that, that, that key question there. Sotomayor kind of con- concludes that taking the facts in the light most favorable to Hughes, it is, uh, beyond debate that Casella's use, use of deadly force was objectively unreasonable. Um, the qualified, uh, the qualified immunity dispute here between the majority and dissent is very, it's very fact bound. It kind of is really digging into these specific cases and how they, how they're similar or different to what happened here. Um, but possibly more interesting is, is, uh, after her discussion of the case specifically, Sotomayor goes on to, to challenge the appropriateness of using a summary reversal in this particular case. And she, here's some language, um, from her opinion. She says, a summary reversal is a rare disposition, usually reserved by this court for situations in which the law is settled and stable, the facts are not in dispute, and the decision below is clearly in error. This is not such a case. The relevant facts are hotly disputed, and the qualified immunity question here is, at the very best, a close call. Rather than letting this case go to a jury, the court decides to intervene prematurely, purporting to correct an error that is not at all clear. And she she criticizes the majority's one-sided approach to qualified immunity summary reversals, basically saying that when a lower court rules against the police on qualified immunity, says there's no immunity in, particular, in a particular case, um, the Supreme Court is very um, eager to uh, reverse those cases, often summarily reverse those cases. But when a lower court has granted qualified immunity, the court is not interested in taking those cases. So she says it's just this one-sided um, approach. And and that's an issue that... that uh, uh, a number of commenters, uh, court watchers have, 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 uh, commented on, um, that the court doesn't really, um, isn't really transparent about why it grants these, these, uh, summary cases, the, the, these, uh, summary opinions. It's much clearer often why the court chooses to take particular cases for its merits argument for full briefing, but not as clear how it picks and chooses which case it, it feels are, are, uh, fit for, for summary disposition. So that brings us now to our last uh, opinion of, uh, of tonight's live stream. And this is the, the one opinion that the court issued in an argued case this week. On Monday, the court issued one opinion in an argued case, which brings the total up to 18 so far for the term, um, of 63 total, um, that, which, which will likely be 62 after, after the Microsoft case, assuming the Microsoft case is dismissed. That means there's still 44 cases, 44 opinions, that are due from the court by the end of June. Um, next week, the court won't be issuing any opinions because it's uh, just in its break between the March and April sitting. It's, it's, there's no um, no opinion date next week. So a- after that, there's only 11 weeks left of the term. So that means the court has to issue an average of four opinions a week um, to, to finish everything in time. Uh, it, that's likely to be heavily backloaded toward uh, mid to late June 
Um, that's typical, but it's just a lot of opinions. So we should, we should expect to really start seeing more of these coming down. Um, but, uh, uh, we'll see. Um, the court has been, uh, very consistent about getting its opinions out by the end of June. They don't like to be delayed before their, uh, their summer recess. Um, so the expectation is that, that even though there's a lot of cases to get done, the court will churn all of these opinions out and we will see 44 more opinions, uh, um, before June is out. But, uh, um, we'll see. So this, uh, this opinion, the, the opinion in a argued case, this was a case called Encino Motor Cars v. Navarro. And this case was a, a closely divided 5-4 decision. And it was along the stereotypical, uh, left-right lines with, uh, Justice Thomas writing for the conservative majority and Justice Ginsburg writing for the four dissenters, which is the, the, the so-called liberal wing of the court. And what this case is about is about the uh, the Fair Labor Standards Act. That's a 1938 statute that sets uh, federal minimum wage and overtime requirements for uh, employees that are covered by this act. Now, the act includes a number of exemptions, so types of employees that are exempted, either exempted from both minimum wage and overtime or, uh, as is at issue in this case, exempted just from the overtime requirements. Um the the list of exemptions is is really something to see. I encourage anyone who's interested to look look this up. If you want to find it, Google twenty nine USC two thirteen. If you just Google that, it'll 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 come right up, and you you can uh, you can see um, the exemptions from the uh, the Fair Labor Standards Act. There's really a surprising mix of job categories. Some of these exemptions. Um, you, you can kind of see why, based on the nature of the work or the typical um, methods of compensation, why these might have been included. But others really look like maybe they're, they're uh, just a, a special interest carve out, just some some industry that that uh, um, perhaps some uh, uh, influential uh, uh, congressman or senator um, wanted to uh, to carve out of the uh, these overtime requirements. Here's here's just a few uh, examples of the types of things that are included in this. For example. Any employee engaged in the processing of maple sap into sugar or syrup, uh, they're exempt from the overtime requirements. Any driver employed by an employer engaged in the business of operating taxi cabs. Or any employee employed by an establishment which is a motion picture theater. Uh, perhaps it's surprising, but uh, employees of motion picture theaters are exempt from the overtime requirements uh, under federal law. There may be differences in state law, but in any case... Um, so the key uh, issue here is is one of these exemptions, and this one is the the language at issue here reads: This is uh, for employees of uh, of uh, car dealerships. Um, it's any salesman, partsman, or mechanic primarily engaged in selling or servicing automobiles, trucks, or farm implements. Now I'm going to break this down here. It, it refers to three job categories: salesman, partsman, mechanic. Uh, in case you're not familiar with the term, I wasn't familiar with the term before seeing some of these cases, but partsman is the person who's responsible basically for managing the service department's inventory of parts, working with the uh, mechanics to obtain the parts that are needed for particular repairs and things of that nature. So you have those three job titles, job types, salesman, partsman, mechanic, and two job duties that are listed, selling automobiles and servicing autom- automobiles. So the question here is, what about Service advisors. So service advisors, the employee at a car dealership who, who, uh, consults with the customers about their servicing needs and tells it, sells them servicing solutions. So the person at the desk who you actually talk to in the service department, if you want to get work done on your car and tells you about, uh, you know, pricing and, and, uh, you know, what can be done, things like that. That's the service advisor. Are they covered by this? The argument is they're salespeople. So, so one of the three categories, salesman, partsman, mechanic, they're salespeople. Um, but they're not involved in selling automobiles. They, they instead sell, uh, the, the services, uh, that are provided, um, at the dealership. Um, so the argument is they're involved in the servicing of automobiles. So they're a salesman involved in the servicing of automobiles. Now, there are two competing readings at issue of, of the, of, of this phrase. The, the, it said again, um, any salesman, partsman, or mechanic primarily engaged in selling or servicing automobiles. Now, you could read this as any of these following three, salesman, partsman, or mechanics, engaged in any of these two, selling or servicing of automobiles. 
that's what's being referred to as the distributive reading. You just say anything, any one of column A, any one of column B, anything that fits in those two qualifies here. And you can see a, a, a simple example of that is if you if you read something for some a statute or regulation or something that referred to letters or packages shipped by train, ship, or plane. The intuitive, obvious reading would be you're talking about any letter, any package that's shipped by any of those three methods, train, ship, or plane, right? Um, and and so that's the distributive reading. But there's there's a different way you could read this, and this is what's referred to as as the distributive reading. And the argument is that some of the category, the different ones of those job categories apply to to uh, different actions. So you have salesman, parsman, mechanics, and you have selling and servicing. What it really means is salesmen engaged in selling and partsmen and mechanics engaged in servicing. That's referred to as distributive reading. And here's an example that kind of uh, shows how that might work. If someone were to say um, authors or illustrators engaged in writing or drawing, then the natural interpretation is you're talking about authors engaged in writing and illustrators engaged in drawing. And and you you were just each of the um, each of the actions was applied to one of the categories. So that, that's that's one of the key questions here. Um, now, just to give a little bit of history of this particular legal question, the question of whether service advisors are covered, when the Department of Labor initially interpreted this exemption, um, the, the, the Department of Labor said that it did not apply to service advisors. This was back around 1970. Um, but after that, shortly after that, several federal courts disagreed with the Department of Labor's reading of this, said that it the exemption did apply to service advisors. And then in 1978, the Department of Labor uh, issued an opinion letter uh, holding that service advisors were exempt uh, under this, uh, this, this provision. So the service advisors were included. So that was the 1978 opinion letter. Now that remained the district, the Department of Labor's position from 1978 to 2011. So about 33 years and Congress did not act to clarify the statute at any point during that time. Then in 2011, um, the Department of Labor issued a new regulation. And in this regulation, the, the, the department said that service advisors are not covered by the exemption. They're excluded from that exemption. So after that, lawsuits were filed. This particular uh, lawsuit was filed by current and former service, service advisors um, of a dealership called Encino Motor Cars. It was a Mercedes-Benz dealership. They filed a lawsuit in 2012. And the Ninth Circuit ruled uh, on the basis of the new Department of Labor rule that the service advisors were not exempt and therefore uh, they should have been paid overtime. Now, this case has already been up to the Supreme Court once. The court decided in 2016 they vacated the Ninth Circuit's ruling Set the case back down, and what the court basically said was that the Department of Labor's rule, that new 2011 rule, didn't adequately explain the change, um, uh, the change in policy, um, and so it shouldn't be relied on. And so they threw it back down to the Ninth Circuit. But the, the Supreme Court didn't decide what the correct rule was. They just said, "Don't rely on this Department of Labor um, uh, regulation," and they sent it back down. The Ninth Circuit decided again and said once again um, that the uh, um, service advisors are not exempt, and so it's back up at the Supreme Court. Now, the majority, uh, the the five five justice majority, says that uh, service advisors do fit in this exemption. And here's the quickly the reasoning: they say a service advisor first is a salesman under the ordinary meaning of the term. A salesman is someone who sells goods or services. A service advisor sells services, so they are a salesman. And they say that a service advisor is primarily engaged in servicing automobiles. So they say they fit under that category. They're not primarily engaged in selling automobiles, but they're engaged in servicing automobiles. And here's the description of, of how of what what uh, the majority says that service advisors do. It says they meet customers, listen to their concerns about their cars, suggest repair and maintenance services, sell new accessories or replacement parts, record service orders, follow up with customers as the services are performed, for instance, if new problems are discovered, and explain the repair and maintenance work when customers return for their vehicles. And so they characterize this as this is the servicing process, and that's what these service advisors are, are intimately involved in. Now, they say, yes, it's true that they're not primarily engaged in, in the actual physical repairs and maintenance, but they point to the partsmen, uh, and they say the partsmen also are not primarily engaged in the, in the physical repair and maintenance of the car, but everyone agrees that they must be included under servicing automobiles or else the partsmen would, would be uh, just uh, completely 
um, left out of this uh, statutory scheme. So if everyone in- agrees that servicing automobiles has to be broad enough to include the partsmen, then it should be it must be broad enough, broader than just hands-on um, repairs and maintenance, and would also include the service advisors. And then they go on to this issue of of whether we read this as this disjunctive reading where any one of the job categories can go with any one of the tasks or the distributive reading. And the argument by the majority is basically just a normal reading of language when you're using a term like or to describe different categories is a disjunctive reading where you're saying this or this that it can apply to, to any one of the different categories unless there's language that's indicating otherwise. And they, they point to a few factors that, that, that they say support this. First of all, it's not a one-to-one correlation between the first part of the sentence and the second part of the sentence. Um, and a one-to-one correspondence would lean toward, toward the distributive reading, but when it's not, um, it's unlikely. Um, also the, the, uh, when when the the disjunctive reading would be contradictory or impossible, then the court says the, the distributive reading is favored, but that's not the case here. Um, and it also says that this exemption suggests it's broad coverage through use of any. It starts out saying any salesman, partsman, or mechanic, or, or mechanic, and that suggests that it's, it's uh, meaning to apply broadly. And then also they point to the end of this where it applies to people s- selling or servicing automobiles, trucks, or farm implements. And so again, you have a list of of, of uh, items separated by an or, and everyone agrees there that those apply to to all of the parts, to the to all of the different factors. So automobiles, trucks, or farm implements, any one of those three categories applies to any salesman, any partsman, any mechanic. So they say it would be odd to read that in a disjunctive way, but then read the selling and or servicing in a distributive way in in the same sentence. Um, but then the the court also argue uh, another argument that the court addresses. Is it refers to there's a a kind of a, something referred to as a canon of interpretation. This is kind of a a um, a rule of thumb uh, that courts uh, the courts repeatedly uh, uh, reference and, and use in deciding certain types of cases. Uh, the courts have said in the past that these exemptions, FLF, the Fair Labor Standards Act FLSA um, exemptions, should be construed narrowly. It's part of a general principle that exemptions to broad regulatory schemes should be narrowly construed to better uh, fulfill the, the broad uh, purposes of these regulatory schemes. And the court basically flatly rejects this this rule of thumb and and just says, and it's relying um, in some part on uh, a treatise uh, published a few years back by the late uh, Justice Scalia. It's uh, this book right here. It's called Reading Law. Um, that, that uh, Justice Scalia wrote with uh, Brian Garner, who's the editor of Black's Law Dictionary. And and Justice Scalia's position in that book was just this that the court is saying that uh, exemptions are just as much of part of the statute as the as the uh, the broad remedial provisions of the statute. The FLSA here, the court says, contains dozens of exemptions, so it's not clear that the Congress necessarily wanted this to apply uh, extremely broadly if it's carving out exemptions left and right. And the court says basically all parts of the statute should get a fair reading, basically without a thumb on the scale, not 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 a not a, not necessarily narrowly or broadly constrained, but just trying to fairly read each part of it. Um, so that's the basic uh, shape of the majority opinion. Now, the dissent by Justice Ginsburg, and again joined by Justices Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan, um, it takes the opposite view. It says basically this statute was intended to exempt three well-defined positions: salesmen, partsmen, mechanics. It said Congress was well aware of service advisors at the time the exemption was written. That was a different job at these car dealerships. And Congress didn't include it in the statute. They just had salesmen, parsman, mechanics. Congressmen knew who was normally considered a salesman, and that was not the service advisors. And then uh, also argues that service advisors are not involved in this in the servicing. So they're not primarily engaged in servicing automobiles. And she distinguishes the partsmen, uh, saying that partsmen um, actually do get their hands dirty. They're basically the mechanic's right-hand man. And um, so they are really, even if... Even if you say it has to be broad enough to include the partsmen, that doesn't get you all the way to including these service advisors as actually engaged in servicing automobiles. And then um, she talks about the purpose of these exemptions and says that the purpose was the long, irregular hours that were often served by by salesmen who were working on commission and also mechanics, especially in rural areas because one of the – 
categories that was um, one of the um, motivating factors here were, were these um, uh, repair people for farm equipment in rural areas who might have to uh, go out and make uh, um, uh, house calls at all uh, hours of the day or night to get equipment working again. Um, and, and so these long irregular hours were what prompted Congress to exempt these categories. And that just doesn't apply to service advisors who usually work a, a, a much more um, a regular uh uh, regular hours uh, at a dealership. Um, and she also, on this issue of this, uh, the construing exemptions narrowly, um, objects to the majority, which she characterizes as the majority rejecting uh, a half a century of precedent of narrowly construing these FLSA exemptions. Um, so that's that's the basic shape of, uh, of, of the, the majority and the dissent in this case. And so that brings me to the end of uh, this live stream episode. Our next episode will be, uh, next live stream will be a week from today. So Thursday, April 12th, again at 9 p.m. Eastern time. That's our usual weekly live stream time every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern. But you can always check the Counting to Five YouTube channel to find the next scheduled live stream. Um, and for next week's live stream, the court is currently in recess between its March and April oral argument sittings. There's no conf- conference until uh, next Friday, April 13th. Um, and then oral arguments start up on Monday, April 16th. So we're not expecting any more opinions or granted cases in the next week, um, not not until at least uh, April 16th. Um, but that week, the week of April 16th, so not next week, but the following week, the court will hear oral argument in six cases. They have two a day from Monday through Wednesday that week. So in next week's live stream, Again, that's the April 12th, Thursday, April 12th live stream. I plan to preview uh, the six cases, each of the six cases that the court will be hearing the following week. That's the that's the plan, at least. There's always a possibility of emergency orders or other interesting developments at the court. Um, so we'll uh, keep an eye on uh, any of those. Whether you're watching on YouTube or listening to the audio podcast, I would love your feedback. You can leave comments on the show notes at countingtofive.com on the Counting to Five YouTube channel or Facebook page. You can tweet at Counting to Five or send an email to Mike at Counting to Five.com. Please subscribe to the Counting to Five YouTube channel or audio podcast to uh, make sure you don't miss future episodes. And thank you for listening. This has been Counting to Five.